so so hello everyone welcome to kino kingdom 44 um the last episode we had our special guest laszlo buckets as we talked through the life and many victories of richard donner and came to the conclusion that wholesomeness togetherness and family were the tenets that held his career together up until 16 blocks uh, but moving on from lovely dickie donner to another dickie episode of kino kingdom um Rup, i i want to kick off with the arkansas because i know we, we always forget this but i i want to i've had three responses um yeah. and have you have you managed to to do it for a start i have done it um no i don't think i'm going to be a winner this week <laughs> oh really yeah okay it's so a, it's a potted path to victory well last week um we put forward the uh, for those that have joined us for the um for the first time also before we go into this i just wanted to say a few people have asked me about um the state of play um where oh, we yeah. cover vi- video games and we are going to do an end of year one we're thinking about doing it from going forwards every every quarter or half year and just do a catch-up because yeah. the gate the, the movies take up so much time um but yeah we we, we are going to do it at end of year state of play probably yeah. for a good three hours just talking about the the good the bad and the ugly sort of thing um and we'll do that around christmas I'll just so talk about <clears throat> metroid dread for 90 minutes to be fine with that. and i'll talk about autobahn police simulator 2 even though it was a game i played last year and gave it four out of ten on games freezer <laughs> Um, it's really not if you're ever more tuned into that then i I will say that when i i reinstalled it um because it was an update i played it on the xbox one and the frame rate was a real problem and when i installed it on the xbox series x it was 60 fps and i thought well actually that is that does make a huge difference it's so it's you know what i'm like with my weird ukrainian games group it's right up my street i look at you chernobylite um so yeah last week i'm going back to movies we put forward the Arkansas of getting in as few steps as possible from Michelle Pfeiffer to Tony Todd. Um, and I've had three responses. Uh, so the first one from Utah Smith is Tony Todd was in the rock with Sean Connery. Sean Connery was with Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer were in what lies beneath. Right. Now, Linking via the rock is going to be a recurring theme for the next couple of minutes. Mm. <laughs> um, so that's a three-stepper. Uh, I had Laszlo Buckets himself got involved and said, here's my Arkansas answer, which has taken a while. Michelle Pfeiffer was in Dangerous li- Liaisons with John Malkovich. John Malkovich was in Corne with Nicolas Cage. And Nicolas Cage was in The Rock with Tony Todd. <laughs> And we've had another entry from someone who wishes to be known as Dick Lawnflower. And Dick Dick's Lawnflower's answer is Michelle Pfeiffer was in Stardust with Robert De Niro, who was in The Untouchables with Sean Connery, who, yes, was in The Rock with Tony Todd. And that's from Dick Lawnflower. Um, what a name, Dick. Um, yeah. yeah, so there's three steppers of the, the sort of order of the day, really, Roop. And I just wondered, have you got anything in the tank? Mine is not a three-stepper. Um, oh, really? I, I think there's a key problem here is that I forgot that Tony Todd is in The Rock. Uh, as did I, Rupert, as did yes. I. And uh, I, I was also I was too convinced... far too focused on Michael Bean's early death in that film. So traumatised. <laughs> 
Um, I actually thought that I not only did I not think it was Tony, I thought it was Bokeem Woodbine, and the guy and the and the, the the sort of white guy who was his sort of partner. It was also a bit of a snake in the film. I thought that was Doug Hutchison. So I'm totally, or, or possibly David Patrick Kelly. So I'm way out the out of the zone with that. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's pretty out there. I I'm, I haven't even since actually concocting this, uh, so constructing this, I haven't actually even looked at Tony Todd's filmography. To see if <clears throat> It's actually possible to get there quicker, um, but he is definitely in the rock. Um, so my Arkansas is Tony Todd is in Candyman, as we know, with Virginia <laughs> Madsen. He's in hell, okay. Sideways with Paul Giamatti, who's in The Truman Show with Jim Carrey, who's in Batman Forever with Michael Goff, who's in <laughs> Batman Returns with Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. It's <laughs> a five-stepper. Anytime Michael Goff is mentioned in this, that's absolutely fantastic. So it's a five-step. So it's three-two to you. You're still in the lead, but the audience yeah. are creeping up on you. It's, it's um, um, I'm also um, before we go into the, the movies, by the way, minor, oof, minor mixed bag. Um, but but oh, um, so am I. Um, before we go into that, though, I don't know if you remember last last week i got in touch with that agent and i sent him pictures of my feet 10 step uh, to the point that as laszlo buckets pointed out they looked like hands with tiny fingers mm-hmm. and and he said i can have a minute with various people you know under his sort of payroll and last week i managed to have a minute with michael york mm. with word association and this week it's a minute with peter mullen peter me drank laughter violence clown more laughter knife teeth grin dancing chips fighting Drink, telly, foot, windy, screaming, laughing, drink, I shit myself, laughter, Cliff Richard. So that was a minute with Peter Mullen. I, stuff. It's, I don't know why that they keep on ending on Cliff Richard. Like with Peter Mullen, it was there weren't even links to some of those. No. They were, he was just saying words. Maybe that's uh, you know the rawness of the interview style brings how sort of scattershot his mind is. Maybe they just flashbacks more than word association. Stream of consciousness oh. stuff, isn't it? Whatever pops into his head. It was like every twenty seconds or so, the word "drink" came into his head, wasn't Yeah, and and like violence and knives and feet uh, as well. Um, so thank you, Peter Muller, for a minute with, and yeah, going so going back to mine, I'm I've got a few a, a few films to sort of go through, but I I believe Rupert, have you got a theme this time? It's a theme. <laughs> I but seeing as it's you know Halloween season, I took this opportunity to watch every single Halloween film as in part of the Halloween franchise, every single film in that series from beginning to end. Uh, um, I'm not even sure how many there are. 
I'm going to say I'm going to say eleven. Could be says um, six, seven, eight, <clears throat> nine, ten. Yes, there are eleven, including the 2018 film. Yes, there are. Nice, good. Wow. Um, I'm gonna I'll kick off because I've got a few two minutes of that school. Sure, and, sure, sure. Um, uh, the, the the first thing I want to talk about is. It's a documentary, and I know we don't often cover them, but it's important that I mention this one because it was so average. Um, this is a film called a documentary about drumming called Count Me In. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a drummer myself, but I am a musician, and I and I've been to drum clinics, and I love watching, and I quite routinely will watch drummers just doing uh, online, not so much solos, but clinics and talking about the techniques. I, I find it really weirdly tribal and relaxing. And impressive so I've, i watch a lot of a lot of drum work and i i sat down with the drummer in my band half cut to watch this and i thought this is going to be brilliant it's got people in there like stuart copeland um jim keltner who's done a lot of stuff nick mason nico mcbrain stephen perkins chad smith ginger baker ginger baker is dead rupert so no he wasn't in this did you um, see that documentary about Ginger Baker? Yeah, he literally looked like Skeletor's ball bag. <laughs> An angry man. Such a charming uh, man. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a song by the Smiths, Rupert. So oh. well, the thing is with this, I, I it became pretty clear after about 15, 20 minutes that, yes, it's kind of a celebration of drumming, but it was so rudimentary in its in its approach. They baited the film. after it, When it finished, and it finished really sort of suddenly, I realised that the two things it was saying were... Drummers are important in bands, I guess, and and also like women can drum as well. Um, really? And it, fe- it felt like a weirdly dated statement to be making. Um, it's a bit redundant, isn't it? Especially because a lot of the the female drummers they were talking about the, to use and sort of drive this point home were female drummers who'd been working since the eighties. So it's not like it's a new thing. The people who would like replace the original drummer, like Motley Crue and stuff, and you're like, I I know that women can drum. It's this this isn't like the late seventies. I'm quite comfortable with female drummers. Um, yeah, and it just seemed really sort of that people just um, s- sort of sitting there and saying, God, I remember, you know, when I started playing the drums, oh, it's such a release. And I thought, well, yeah, it's like that with any instrument, isn't it? And it reminded me, um, and it was just people taking it in turn to say the same thing. It reminded me of an interview with Ed Sheeran I read once where he said, oh, you know, I was just in my kitchen. I just picked up the guitar and started writing a song. And I thought, no shit, did you, Ed? Because that's exactly how everyone does it, isn't it? Everyone in the world. Um, So it was just really undynamic. And there were some nice nice moments, of you know, where people just sort of got behind the kit and, and showed their grooves and stuff. But it felt like a really weirdly simplistic and dated message. And, mm. and it, it drained the fun out of the whole film because it was just cutting to different people effectively saying the same thing. So it's a, that's a weird one, isn't it? Because you'd think that there's an opportunity there to kind of explain the uh, almost mystical allure of drumming because it's such a different thing to every other part of the band in a way, isn't it? And, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's such a physical, a, yeah, such a fundamental. You know, it would have been the first incident uh, instrument that human beings would have picked up. You know, <clears throat> yeah, uh, smashing their heads on stone or whatever they did back in the old days. <laughs> before the like smashing their children's heads on stone before international track and field was invented and they could just hammer buttons as fast as they can with stones it, instead exactly. they, get, they didn't i bet they didn't even mention in their documentary how much better drummers are at track and field international track and field 
um it's yeah their well, natural their natural ability to produce fast rhythms if it goes back to you know like st- carvings on stone walls and it's it's like someone like hitting two bricks together and then and then it's someone playing an international track and field arcade cabinet and then it's someone putting a lighter between the buttons and then it's someone wrapping their finger in a shirt so they can just move back and forth and you're like oh this is i see they really move forward quickly with that <laughs> taking a turn <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah if yeah if in all fairness if this was just going through all these really influential world-class drummers talking about like how they approach international track and field to get sub seven seconds in the 100 meter sprint i mean i'd be much more involved <laughs> um, so yeah that's that's count me in um you might get yeah. something out of it if you're a drummer but it, you don't expect to be surprised by it and don't no, expect I'm, to want to return no, I'm to thinking it. i'm thinking count me out huh. please be gone <laughs> please allow the silence to continue <laughs> um so are you literally are you just gonna talk to me about michael myers now for two hours that's pretty much it yeah <laughs> good uh, well I, i'm obviously going to do these in order for release and in many ways order of quality um so <laughs> so uh the reason i chose this series is because well, the first like six movies are currently on Netflix, which is nice. Um, uh, so yeah, I started with the original Halloween, obviously, which was made in 1978, um, and it's a slasher classic from John Carpenter. It kind of set down the template for the genre. Um, I mean, there have been other kind of slashes before then, like Psycho and Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But this kind of stripped it, stripped it to its barest essentials, really. So the story is this uh, kid, Michael Myers, uh, murders his sister on Halloween night, possibly as a punishment for her sexual awakening. Um, anyway, the kid's sectioned, um, and then years later he escapes, returns to his home in Haddonfield, Illinois, and then he basically resumes where he left off. Uh, he's an adult now, and he goes around slaying young college girls on halloween night uh so yeah it's a very basic exercise really in tension and atmosphere and it's it's very efficient and mysterious in a way that none of the sequels ever really could be um and it's it's that basic nature of it it's uh largely back lack of backstory really and lack of motivation it gives it this sort of blank slate quality that means it can be read in multiple ways which i think is quite fun and it makes it quite rewatchable because you can consider it in different ways each time like this time i was thinking i was thinking like laurie strode who's played by jamie lee curtis of course uh she's sort of presented as this bookish young woman uh you know she doesn't want to go out partying in the same way our friends do she's kind of wants to stay in and, and, be, and study and we assume she's a, a virginal teenager and it's it's like the appearance of michael myers is almost like a conjuring of her own mind in a way it's uh it's it's almost like this fear of the inevitability of being physical with a man a kind of nightmarish apprehension of a rite of passage that can't be avoided and i thought that was quite interesting and and I think in a way only a film with this level of uh, simplicity can you could kind of 
read it on different levels each each time. It's quite fun. Anyway, it's there's some cool moments in it. Like um, at one point, Laurie watches the original The Thing uh, from the 50s. And of course, John Carpenter would go on and remake that four years later, which is pretty cool. It was good as well, that was. It was a good film. Um, in terms of like violence in that, um, the original Halloween is pretty tame by today's standards. And it does have some plotting flaws, I won't lie. I mean, the fact that Donald Pleasant's character, Loomis, spends half the film hiding in a bush, for example. <laughs> and <laughs> hiding in a bush, scaring kids. And um, and it does... I didn't know my dad was film. Donald Pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> the, the film does have this kind of build-up versus climax proportion, which is pretty out of whack, I'd say. It's a lot of build-up not that much will pay off at the end but i think in terms of its clarity and its single-mindedness it it really was one of a kind at the time um uh, and it yeah okay it inspired a hell of a lot of drivel after it but it, it really was quite new at the time it was quite unlike anything that had really been done before in this particular style i don't think it's john carpenter's best film by any means but it's probably his most influential um and I'll say if you're only going to watch one pre-2018 Halloween franchise movie, this is the one to watch. Obviously, yeah. I don't know why you jumped straight to like Halloween three. <laughs> yeah, without Michael Myers in it. Um, mm. No, I, I I've seen the the I think the first, possibly the second, and the, and the I, well I thought it was the fifth, but the sixth one with Paul Rudd. Um, a, a, f- a good few times over the years because it was that was our go-to. Uh, my my other uh, drummer actually I watched Count Me In with uh, Alex who's in, is in a band with me. We he had a Halloween box set and we really smashed through those VHS tapes. That's right, VHS tapes. And then boom, don't worry, he got rid of them and bought the DVDs when that became famous as well. Don't worry about that, guys. That's right. Um, but we watched it's those really a lot. Hard to get the whole collection now. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's because of different production companies, isn't it? Yeah. They're all yeah. Um, so I watched them. I'm really familiar with them. But as we chatted offline about a week ago about this briefly, it's with the Halloween series, especially the ones I watched so much as a teenager. It's hard to to separate the, the quality from the level of my engagement with them and the influence they had on like my friendship, my life at the time. So it's tough to talk, not tough to talk about, but difficult to separate. And but what I what I remember about the Halloween films is that when you're a teenager, um, there it's like an easy watch because mm. if you're a bit of a scaredy cat like i was a, i was very scared when i was a kid of, of horror films and stuff so it's quite light in a way you know there's yes. like there's not really like harsh jump scares and no. it's not really gory so no it, it's, it's more about good, atmosphere and intensity yeah really. yeah it's a good sort of starting point for horror yes. i think um yeah and especially getting... the first one because the first one is easily the least like violent and malicious so um so i'm actually looking forward to going through this because I, i'm trying to see which ones i would have um which ones i remember really most fondly but um so yeah that's good halloween is a good film um yeah. we still need to do that thing where we watch a load of john carpenter in a day and do an episode on it by the way yeah. i hope that's okay um it doesn't mean you'll have to watch halloween again <laughs> um um, I'm going to talk about a film called Deuces Wild, which is going to be a quick, quick two-minute trashing. This is a 2002 gangster film set in the 1950s, and actually, it stars Stephen Dorff. But I'm just going to, I'm just going to go through the cast list here and just hit you with some big 
effing names, okay? Dorf, Renfro, Balk, Pastori, Muniz, Getty, Dylan, Reedus. Big names. Big names, especially in 2002, before Norman Reedus started squinting at everything. That man <laughs> needs an eye test and he needs to wash his hair. I think so, he's in one of the Halloween films as well, and I cannot remember which one. I just, re- I just re- when you said Dylan, did you mean Kevin Dylan? <laughs> Matt Dylan. Oh. It's Stephen Dorff, Brad Renfro, Feruza Balk, Vincent Pastori, Frankie Muniz, yes, from Malcolm in the Middle, uh, Balthazar Getty, Matt Dylan, and Norman Reedus. Yeah, I, I, when I think of Norman Reedus, I think about him in Gossip, a film okay. with, I think it's got like Lena Headey in it, um, James... I think James Remar is in it, but what's the guy? James Marsden who played the original Cyclops and, and Norman Reedus. It's like a it's good good film gossip. I should watch that again. Anyway, um, so this uh, the film starts off and Stephen Dorth is one of three brothers, uh, a, a, his younger brother called Al and his uh, middle brother called Bobby, played by Brad Red, Brad Renfro. And the film starts off uh, in awful slow motion. It's not even slow motion. I don't even know what it's called when it's sort of the frame is almost like um, stretching. It's like the, it's like really choppy footage, it, like cheap slow motion. I don't really know what they're doing, but it's so him. Is it, and it's, is it kind of so it's slowed down, but yeah, it's in frames. Yes, yes, I mean they they probably haven't filmed it they, because if you slow down regular footage, then the frame rate isn't high enough to make yeah. it look smooth when it's slowed down. So they do it a lot in this film, especially during the fight scenes. It looks awful. It's always looked awful. Mm. I, yeah. It's never had a good it's never been a good start start because of course they they have to slow down the audio as well so when it's like no no (laughs) what get over here and you know it just sounds so amdram anyway so yeah he's his uh it's in the 50s in brooklyn and stephen dorse uh younger brother ali has just got bang into smack and he's had an overdose depressingly on a child's (laughs) roundabout in the playground and uh, Leon, Stephen Dorr's character, vows to never let junk get in the sort of the, the, the sort of block that they protect in Brooklyn in the gang called the Deuces. It then fast forward three years and they're kind of running the street. And Matt Dillon plays a character called Fritzy who moves uh, his his gang, who, but he's part of the Russian mafia, not like just a little street gang, into a, a building on this street, uh, ostensibly to turn it into sort of a bar. But really, it's so he can use it as a place to sort of sell junk. And the deuces are having none of this. It's a pretty straightforward plot. But the, the problem with the film, and, it, and it's a huge, huge like eyeball rolling problem, is that the film is effectively two massive gangs, both of whom contain people with like one or two main characters and the rest are just background characters, just just shouting and swearing at each other from opposite sides of a street. And then when when they do get into West Side Story, <laughs> when, they, when they do get into a scuffle, it's either that warped, slowed down footage and heavy rain with lots of blue lights everywhere, or it's just it's like a really nasty fight that clearly it's like they they, they alternate between just bickering and sort of saying, "Oh, you fucking, you know, are you you pussies," and then the police are like, "Come on, guys, stop being knobs." Or get into like a really visceral fight where they could all like hitting each other in the head with crowbars, where they would all just be dead. Um, and, and then, but then, like going away to recuperate, and saying, "Oh, we'll get them next time." And you think this is very cyclical, guys. You're just getting into these like random scraps where some of you die, some of you get crippled, and you just seem 
it just seems really aimless. I mean, maybe that's the point, but it's done in a very boring way. And okay. I wish I'd kept count of how many times Stephen Dorse's character, so Frankie Muniz, who's like the sort of, because of course this is 2002, he would have been in his early teens, runs in to tell him that one of his guys has been attacked or someone said something about his girl. And he just says, I'm going to fucking kill him, puts on a shirt and slams the door and runs out somewhere. It happens about eight or nine times. Mm. And it, it it gets it gets to the point where you just think I feel like I'm watching a load of kids bickering in a schoolyard. Yeah, I'm not um, sure that's how the mob really runs its well uh, chapters. To be honest, this is this is also the thing is how um the whole film goes on like this that it makes up these two little gangs fighting, but then at the end of the film um like one of the one of the mafia guys is killed in a, in a, you know, in a, in a sort of retaliation attack. And there's a voiceover by Brad Renfro that sort of says, Oh, you know, I made a promise. There wouldn't be any junk on these streets, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, but that's just one person in the Italian mafia. So like after this film ends, if the, if the, the narrative carried on, they would just say, right, just kill them all. Just go in there and just kill them all and kill their families. And we'll just have that pub because they are just a load of sort of brats. And it's, it's like romanticizing, this narrative that really doesn't hold up to close scrutiny because the mafia would be relentless and ruthless. And these are a load of kids hanging around outside of barbers in their late teens. Um, so yeah, it just feels silly to be honest. It's not, it's not, it feels like a, like um, a bad stage play that got financing. Um, and the, the performances are all over the top. The music is awful. It's by Stuart Copeland. Actually, he was also in um, count me in and, yeah, and just you got Norman Reedus wandering around in like black leather shirts. Clearly, they fitted black leather shirts that they clearly wouldn't have been wearing in the fifties. Um, yeah. So it's just silly and and boring and and, and irritating more than anything else. It sounds unconvincing anyway. Yeah, least. really um, unconvincing. Which is a bit of a problem, really. Yeah, you know the Untouchables, which you watched quite recently. I know it's a yes. slightly different era because that was like Prohibition era, but. What's really cool about that is that there's a sense of the task being overwhelming and actually there's no way, like the mob are so powerful and so well organised and so clever with their kind of self-marketing and stuff that there's no way of taking them down as actual mobsters. And that's why, of course, they had to go down the route of tax evasion. That that was the whole thing. And that gives, and just that very fact gives you a sense of like their power and stuff and the they and how entrenched they are yeah. in that life as well yeah yeah but then when you have yeah a bunch of just and it's a problem that does arise in gangster films quite a bit and where it just seems like a lot of schoolyard nonsense uh, pushing back and forth yeah mm. with the occasional blast of violence um yeah, yeah. and then there's like there's lots of scenes in it where through a bulk um has a really unconvincing relationship with Brad Renfro where he just walks up to her and, and she rebuffs him constantly. And then they suddenly just fall in love anyway. Um, yeah. They, they constantly like meeting at the pier just saying, Oh, you know, I just wish we could get away. And I thought, well, just get in your car, drive away. Cause he doesn't want to be in the gang and she wants to leave. And you think just leave, <laughs> like, just leave. Yeah. Um, so What's yeah. It, uh, Deuce is wild and it's, it's not, it's not very good. Where where can we watch that? Amazon Prime, Rupert, of course. Okay. Uh, well, let's move swiftly onto Halloween Two then, which is also on Netflix. Uh, this one was co-written by John Carpenter, and it was again shot by Dean Cundey, 
Carpenter regular. Um, but this time it's directed by someone called Rick Rosenthal, who also made Halloween Resurrection in 2002. More on that. I was going to say that that name rings a bell for some reason, Rosenthal. It did occur to me that um, John Carpenter's only ever made one sequel, I think, Escape from L.A. I don't think he's done any others, has he? I might just missing something with others here. Um, no, anyway, I don't, no, I don't yeah. think so. Anyway, so this, yeah, Halloween 2, direct, it directly continues from the original film. So it's October 31st, 1978. Uh, Donald Pleasance, uh, spoiler alert, but Donald Pleasance, who played uh, Dr. Loomis uh, in the first film, uh, he, he shoots Michael Myers, but he doesn't kill him. So Michael Myers is on the loose again, and he's targeting young women again. Laurie Strode. Uh, is taken to hospital um, after her ordeal. Meanwhile, Donald Pleasance Loomis is losing the plot. He's running around with the cops trying to find Michael Myers. Um, it's another very mannered performance from Donald Pleasance, I won't lie. Um, and there are a few of them in this series. Um, so, yeah, like the news is out that Michael Myers did all this. And so now the locals are trashing the Myers childhood home. Um, meanwhile, Michael himself is he's gradually working his way basically to the hospital where Laurie Strode is recuperating. So a lot of the movie is just nubile young nurses getting freaked out in this weirdly empty, weirdly dark hospital. Um, <laughs> now, Jamie Lee Curtis, she spends most of the film half asleep and then she's half crippled. Um, she wears a bad wig in this film. And she barely says anything, to be honest. Meanwhile, does she, Don, does she go to the top of the roof of this hospital at one point? Uh, I can't remember if she does it in this one, but oh, she, right, does, okay, yeah. she does okay, in okay. the H2O. No, Halloween 2, the um, Rob Zombie version. Um, All right, okay. Maybe she does in this, I can't remember. Um, so, yeah, so she doesn't really say much in the film, but Donald Pleasance won't shut up. He's either... He's either giving yet more backstory about Michael Myers or he's explaining pagan mythology or whatever. He's just constantly talking. Um, it, this film, a lot of it feels like, I think you mentioned something about this in uh, this phenomenon in another movie recently where it feels like a lot of the takes are rehearsals. You know? It's like yeah, that timing, was Hollywood homicide. Yeah, right. The timing just seems slightly wrong. The rhythm of the dialogue feels wrong. It's not quite there. It feels like it feels like Rick Rosenthal saying, you know, cut print and everyone's looking around at each other thinking we should do one more. But OK. <laughs> um, but really, the biggest and most infamous issue here with Halloween 2 is the decision to make Laurie Strode and Michael Myers siblings. And it is a stupid and needless twist. Um, and apparently John Carpenter came up with this while he was drunk and presumably regrets it now. Um, I mean, the look of the film definitely replicates the original. It's got these really nice jet black shadows and this the same classic Carpenter ultra wide photography. So that's nice. And there's some variety in the killings. You get like a death by hammer. There's a face scolding. There's a syringe to the eye. Um, but it's also got scenes where like, it's really mundane scenes where you'll, you'll just show Michael Myers like wandering around the town, still wearing his mask, of course. Um, but all these scenes of him wandering around, 
doing stuff. It just it negates that sense of metaphysical threat that that gives him the name the shape really you know in this he may as well be called the pedestrian he's just wandering around the place and it's like um it does take away some of the mystique um this was also interestingly well for me and for fans of the last starfighter this was the debut of lance guest who's a he's a good young actor and he should have been a bigger star but don't know what happened to him um but overall it's a pretty average sequel and it, that twist that introduces uh, it, it, it's almost like it's the killer blow for the whole franchise in a way. It definitely affected it long term. But um, there you go. It's it's not really it's a pretty redundant sequel. which um, it's just a pale imitation, really, of the original. Similarly, uh, like the, the photography's as nice, but that's about it, really. So, okay, so first one, not the second one so far. If we're going to put together the definitive Halloween list to watch. It is going to be a short list. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I watched Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds. Okay. Um, I I think you've seen this, haven't you? I have seen this. Yeah. Um, This this is a film that um, I I, I was sort of drawn towards because I thought, I think I like Ryan Reynolds as a person. And this was the film that made me realize that he just does the same thing in every film he's in, really. Uh, he plays the same character to different levels of, with swearing, really. He's like swearing on or off. Um, but he is likable. And, and and I think that does carry this film to an extent. But it is so fiercely sentimental. Um, so the story is that uh, Guy, uh, Guy Pierce, Ryan Reynolds plays a person called Guy, who is an NPC in a, an, an MMORPG uh, called Free City. Um, and it's just a huge game. But we made a company called Tsunami Games, who, and it's uh, the company is owned by a person played by, and I always forget this man's name, <gasps> oh, Taika Waititi. Well, yeah, Taika Waititi. Um, and he has stolen code from two people, one of whom is Jody Coma, who are trying to find a way to find their code in this game and so they can prove that uh, Taika Waititi has, Titi has stolen the code and you know get some money and some kudos for it because they were originally going to create this um, fantastical, beautiful, luscious world where there was no violence online and he just turned it into a typical shooter. In the game, Guy slowly becomes self-aware and breaks out of his npc daily routine of just getting the same coffee and going to getting robbed at the bank sort of thing and he begins to question his own reality so the touch of the truman show in there as well um the film the whole like in terms of spectacle it's 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 a fun idea and it is fun on screen that all this violence is constantly going on and they, the the npcs just just have their set routines and stuff and a lot of the humor comes from that and the problem is, though, <laughs> the problem is that the, the things blow up in this film bigger than a shed, Rupert, quite frankly. <laughs> and it can't, ju- it can't just have fun. The film cannot just have fun and be funny. It has to get really, really sentimental and silly. And there's a few misjudged jokes in here. Like there's a, there's a 
considering it's such, I don't know what rating it is, but considering it's such a, does it say on Wikipedia what the rating is? Don't think so. Considering it's such a sort of fun film that everyone can, you know, the gamers can sort of uh, click with, and you've you've got this ridiculous romance between the, the two um, programmers mm. that are trying to, to find the code in the game. More on that in a bit. Um, there's a scene in it where Taika just says, "Oh, this is like having ass and ball cancer," and you think, "See, like, not that that's not a funny line because he is a funny guy." But it just seems slightly misjudged to bring up cancer jokes in a film. I don't know. And that, that really bit, stood yeah. Up. Parts What's like that right? where it slips into that sort of thing. It feels like it's sort of pandering to online shooter banter, if you see what I mean. Edgy yeah. online shooter banter. It's like, like, yeah. the, the kind of people who laugh at that joke are the kind of people that will enjoy Cards Against Humanity. A game for people who are not funny themselves. So they can read things off cards that aren't funny and make their awful friends laugh. So yeah, I was, was watching the film and, and I thought, I'm kind of enjoying this, the spectacle of it. And the, but, but of course, after that initial setup, it has to get into this, this narrative. And then it, it, the way in which the, the plot resolves itself and the, a tiny spoiler, but the way in which these two developers fall in love is so cheesy and just mm. ham-fisted it, it just at the end of it i i think i generally sort of was pinching the bridge of my nose thinking this is painful because and i don't get this especially this film is a perfect example of this when you meet someone right that you eventually fall in love with right the, the, it's 50 50 you have to find them physically attractive uh 50 and you also have to find them the mentally attractive and, and want to spend time with them have to have some sort of emotional engagement and Jodie Comer's character is completely shut off from this guy. Obviously, he doesn't doesn't find him sexually attractive at all. Lusts lusts after Ryan Reynolds' character, who's like a total opposite to this bloke. And then, and at the end of the film, when she realizes he likes her, she just instantly falls in love with him. Mm-hmm. And you think that's so clumsily handled in a film it that really feels it, it felt like an afterthought, frankly. It's two hours long as well. They mm-hmm. had time to to do stuff. To you yeah. know, it literally was just like right. This is where they fall in love. This scene you're in love, right? Like action, and then they are. Uh, and it, well, it's, it's a weird awful. one, isn't it? Because because they want to give so much screen time to Ryan Reynolds because it's his vehicle. Yeah. It's like it spends so much time developing the kind of romance between her and her avatar and Ryan Reynolds, and it's like, like that's where all the focus is. And then suddenly at the end, it's like. Oh, by the way, yeah, you got this real world romance as well, which hasn't been developed at all. It's just like if someone's flicked a switch and it's, it's just turned it on. Yeah. Um, so it's I wouldn't say it was a bad film. I mean, and I could I could imagine at some point in the future I'll put it on again if I'm in the mood, because there were some parts that I found mildly amusing. And Ryan Reynolds is a likable guy. And I think because he's such a nice guy in real life, he has that appeal that carries through to this. But the the, the narrative is it's very much what we've seen before mm-hmm. and some some of the jokes seem misjudged and the romance is ridiculous like actually ridiculous um so yeah it's, I think mild is the word i'd say yeah I yeah it's just mild on all levels in there yeah um so yeah you i guess you felt the same then yeah i thought it was average at best really it, it, it just kind of washed over me I, and there's some really just bad moments i mean it was two hours long they could have cut out all this stuff with um channing tatum he's in it briefly yes yes it's yes. like what it's stop it this is just yeah 
not funny at all. It's it's like one of those ad libbing type comedy scenes, and it's like, please stop, just let's just move on. Um, we yeah. we both really miss tightly scripted comedies, don't we? I think. Oh my god, yes, <laughs> please lord. Um, yeah. So free guy is very skippable, I think. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. What? Where's that? On what's, that's on oh, Disney Plus, isn't it? It is on Disney Plus. Yes. That's surprisingly quick. Um, okay, Halloween three, season of the witch, on Netflix, nineteen eighty two. Next, directed. the next year. Uh, what after? Yeah, because it was eighty one Halloween two, wasn't it? <sighs> yes. Bloody hell, that's fast. That is. Um, well, I think there may be a reason for this, but okay, let's go. Written and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace who's a, a long-time collaborator with John Carpenter. He also directed the um, It miniseries in 1990. Oh, okay. Um, so this film relocates the action to California. And there's, it starts with this crazed man warning everyone they're coming, and he's assassinated in hospital, and then the killer sets himself on fire. So it's quite an interesting opening. Um, Tom Atkins... Night of the Creeps and the Fog fame. He <sighs> plays a doctor. Um, he plays a doctor. He's he he goes home to visit his family. He's actually separated from his wife. But he anyway, he gets his kids these uh, silver shamrock Halloween masks. Right now on the TV, the 1978 Halloween film is being shown. Right. And it's sponsored by Silver Shamrock. And this is a plot point um, that. The film brings up because basically the idea is is that on Halloween people will watch the film, wear these silver shamrock masks, and then die. <laughs> that's that's the conceit. Um, right. It's kind of, I guess, it's an early example of self-reflexive horror. Um, I mean, I think one of the Friday the Thirteenth sequels tried something similar, and of course then they'll scream in the nineties. But anyway, so back to Tom Atkins. He, Tom Atkins <laughs> pairs up with the daughter, right, of the murdered man, uh, right. sort of So the daughter of that murdered murdered man, and so this doctor and the murdered guy's daughter, they go to investigate this silver shamrock factory in the town of San, town of Santa Maria, Santa Mira, Santa Mira. Um, oh. Anyway. The second they get there, right, the second they get to that town and, get, and book themselves into a hotel, they're all over each other. There is a 24-year age gap between the two of them. She this is has the just theme in Tom Atkins' films, isn't it? It's astonishing. Well, in The Fog, there's only 23 years between him and Jamie Lee Curtis. So. He's moving um, on. <laughs> um so, yeah, I mean, it's, and bear in mind that this woman's just lost her father. And she is ridiculously unfazed by the death of her father. She's no grieving whatsoever. I guess, unless you count hooking up with a man old enough to be your dad, I don't know. Anyway, so they're, they're in this town where this silver shamrock factory is. Dan um, O'Healy, the guy from Robocop and Twin Peaks, he's the old man in Robocop, you know, the, the mm. boss of bosses. Robocop. He plays Cochrane, the big cheese. What was this? Oh, the not Dick in Robocop. Uh, di- no. Hang on. So we've got we've got 
Um, oh, it's Ronnie Cox I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah, the yeah, older guy. Is it the, the same guy as in Scrooge as well? That really old guy. Is he in or possibly Mr. Destiny. <laughs> anyway, there's kind of like well, this. Yeah, so you, he's the he's the guy at the very top who gets almost gets um, he gets taken hostage at the very end of Robocop, doesn't he? Um, anyway, so he's the big cheese of Silver Shamrock. He has this grand plan to take Halloween back to his roots and basically murder thousands of children um, oh, via these creepy masks. Can Tom Matkin save the day? Does he uh, say that in front of the quality department and the HR, or does he keep it to himself? <laughs> well, it's never really brought up how many people really know about this, but it seems that they uh, must do because there's this whole secret part of the factory where loads of people work. Um, anyway, so Tom Atkins is there to say that. I mean, Tom Atkins, he never takes the opportunity to call the cops at any point, by the way. So he's just <laughs> going to try and go it alone, I guess. In fact, there's a there's a point right near the end where he's he's sort of driving back to the city trying to escape. And he literally says to himself, oh, I've got to call somebody. So the police, the police. Remember them? Remember that? It's a really simple number. Anyway, so this is yes, this film is completely different to the first two. There's no Michael Myers in this film. It's a different location. It's shot largely in daytime. It's explicitly supernatural. It's um much more reverent it's almost comedic in its own I, I admire the fact that it is so different but i also think and this brings us back to um a previous point you were making um that about how soon it was released after after the previous one i it looks like basically any old 80s horror movie and the halloween branding has just been slapped on it I mean, you want to suggest it oh no i can't believe like, that it'd be so it's so simple that the way, the way they can insert it in there so I, I don't know whether that's the case or not but it really feels like that i suppose in a way this is a film that belongs to a small niche of like anti-corporation horror films like the stuff and so, yeah that's what's gonna videodrome uh, it's sort of horror films crit- critiquing consumer culture but it's a pretty weak and quite muddled entry in that genre it's really lacking a satirical edge. It's got some really clunky storytelling. And like, for example, I mean, like this Cochrane guy, the, the you know, the really evil overlord of this whole enterprise. Yeah. He is happy to coldly murder anyone who steps out of the corporate line. Right. He's absolutely fine with that. He's got no qualms. And then and yet when Tom Atkins, right, is actively investigating the company and trying to bring them down. He is rewarded with a tour and a complete breakdown of their whole operation um, and not killed. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. I, I'd say on the plus side, it does have the best music probably of the entire series. It's got it's um, it's by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth um, collaborator. It's just really deep, dark, sinister synth. Um, it It's it's basically it's like the Halloween score, but much richer it's really good and I, i'll say that the ending is pretty cool it's it's very hopeless and nihilistic so i quite like that but it's just a bit of a it's a bit of a slog getting to that point unfortunately would my love of tom atkins carry me through probably yes <laughs> I do, I, yeah because he is he is a very engaging presence despite his predilection for like 
women who are half his age. <laughs> they need to make. They needed to make a film with him and Brian Dennehy as partners, and they never did. That um, or Dennis Farina even as like, the, oh my god, tri- just just like triplets and just them joining the police force, just mm-hmm. driving around smoking. I'd be all over that for two hours. Um, it would be remiss of me to not mention my favourite Tom Adkins moment in in his filmography thus far which is i think a film i watched with my brother transvaal a very long time ago when he was clearly far too young to be watching such a horror film and it was called something like dead time stories okay or something like that and you know, one of those horror anthologies and it, it's only like a 50 minute um 20 minute um, piece in the film an episode and it starts off with tom adkins as a as a cop pulling up to this it's like a huge church and the, i think one of the i don't know one of the parishioners has been murdered in some weird way and he goes in and talks to the priest there and the priest just says oh you know they just, i don't know they just collapsed or whatever and have these stigmata marks on them and he's like oh and he goes outside for a fag and he sees this other church next to it this huge like shining golden church and he goes in there and has a lengthy conversation with a nun he sits down in one of the pews and has a lengthy conversation with this nun who talks to him like these riddles giving him this information and stuff and he walks outside and the priest says, oh, you've been gone for a while. What did you do? And he said, oh, I've just been in that church talking to the, you know, the the the, uh, the nun in there. <laughs> the guy says, oh, that church burned down 150 years ago. And he turns around and it's literally just the foundations and like just total ruins. And <laughs> Tom Adkins throws his flag on the floor, turns to the priest and says, oh, I must have been mistaken. I thought, no, no, <laughs> no, you you did. You were mistaken. Well, you we just saw had- it. We saw we got it. it on camera. You were, yeah. You that did not. How can you just what? I must have mistaken. I must have just hallucinated a lengthy conversation with a nun in in a building that doesn't exist. That happens to all of us. When we've had a few too many cans. Um, I've, I've my favorite memory that. of my favorite memory of Tom Atkins is in Night of the Creeps, where he plays cop investigating the uh, killings, and uh, he's so grouchy in the film. And every time someone calls him on the phone, uh he just picks up and says thrill me and that's it like as if he's he's so disparaging of anyone who calls him it's just like he's, he expects so little of everyone <laughs> thrill me that is an amazing obviously whenever whenever you call me we have a conversation on the phone the first thing you say is babe yeah. uh, calling back to michael douglas in black rain on <laughs> him and andy garcia unironically calling each other babe is there a scene in that film where anyone in the L.A. heat wears like a black turtleneck at all? I believe so. Um, oh, right. OK. Is there any scene in that film where someone isn't wearing sunglasses? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's mostly filmed at night. Uh, well, my next film isn't Halloween 4 like yours is going to be. It's it's Broken Arrow, 1996 film by John Woo. Um, and I've got to say that this is this ties in with like the rock um, and connie that sort of that sort of era of 90s action and there is something about this film that is really rewatchable. um i'm sure everyone knows the plot but if they don't it stars john travolta and ah oh, there is a film i missed and i've just remembered it after so i reminded myself then uh, it stars john travolta and uh christian slater as uh test pilots for a, a stealth a stealth bomber that has got live two live nukes on it and they're supposed to be flying low over over the utah over the is it the grand canyon in utah i think it is yeah. Um, flying really low through the Grand Canyon and uh, to to try and see if they can be caught on radar as a training exercise by none other than Window Window Delroy Lindo and he is not in the film enough for my taste he's not in any film enough for my tastes and um, 
what happens is as they're flying over there, they, uh, John Travolta clearly is being a bit of a sausage and tries to shoot Christian Slater, drops the nukes in the Grand Canyon and forces Christian Slater to eject. And he wakes up and he wants to track down John Travolta, Major Vic Deacons, and uh, and get the bombs back before he does anything naughty with them. The film is ostentatious. It starts off with them boxing and it's like a top down camera. Um, and it's like you're playing the very first Grand Theft Auto and it's spinning down and the, and the, the boxing ring is just rotating and they're, they're sort of dancing around each other and there's pitch black around them. Um, and of course, John Travolta is like sort of narrating the fight to Christian Slater and and basically just oh, what's that term where, you, you know, it's uh, foreshadowing. It's on every word out of his mouth, foreshadow something in the plot. I swear to God, you think I'm going to hit you with the left, but I'm going to hit you with the right. And oh, all this sort of stuff. And and it goes on and on and on. And they've got this running joke about like, you know, how I bet you I bet you 20 bucks and they're giving each other money. Um. And it's all really cheesy and just really macho, but it, it works because it's so silly. It really, really doesn't take itself seriously. And the best example of the film not taking itself seriously can be witnessed in the way that John Travolta smokes cigarettes in this film. It, he is dramatic with his cigarette smoke into this. Um, and he's like, really, it's really weird. It's like, it's like he knows he's too good for the film. So he's really his character is really cocky, but he's so, so much larger than life. Um, and yeah, it, it's just fun watching Christian Slater um, team up with Samantha Mathis, who's a park ranger, to try and track John Travolta and his gang down. Um, and there's a lot of good banter between John Travolta and Bob Gunton, who plays the guy who's like financing this so they can get the nukes and sell them off and make the millions and disappear into the sunset. It's this got a lot of really silly set pieces helicopters crashing and nuclear bombs gone off in mine shafts and slow motion. I wouldn't be surprised if, if in that mine shaft, if like at one point they both jumped in slow motion towards each other and doves just flew out of the crevices in the rock. It's that kind of film. Um, And and it's just fun. And there's cheesy lines in it and it's really rewatchable. And I, I I would think (sighs) Connie has got a bigger cast but I just think there's something about the chemistry, the ridiculous chemistry between the characters in this film that kind of make it a really breezy viewing. Um, I have not seen it since it first came out. I think you should watch it again. It I think watch? it's it's just fun. Like, I think if you're not, not thinking this is going to be an action film that's going to you know going to really have something to say, if you just think oh, I'm in the mood to crack open a few beers and just just relax, you yeah. you can laugh you can laugh you you feel like you're laughing with it and not at it. Yeah. Uh, okay, which is so, yeah. So it's yeah. got a sense of its own absurdity. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And Frank Whaley is in this, and I was trying to think of a film apart from um, fiction, Pulp Fiction, where he just doesn't play an FBI officer, FBI agent, because he just always seems to turn up as like a rookie FBI agent. He, they make out he is going to be in this film for a while, for like at the start, it's like all about him, 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 and making these cool like working out what's actually going on because Christian Slater can't get in contact with them. He's gone. He's gone. The moment the film starts, they're like, right, off you go, Frank. Here's your 20 quid, mate. Um, And yeah, the film is just basically a a chase movie through really beautiful scenery with John Travolta cracking jokes, smoking fags amazingly, and Christian Slater raising his eyebrows with unmanageable hair. And what eyebrows? Um, Grand Canyon is 
It's in northern Arizona, but I think it may slip into Utah as well. Must do. What what has Utah got then? There's something in Utah, isn't there? Um Saints. Oh my god, that's such a bad reference to a nineties dance band. Um <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm what what has what has Utah got? Should we find out? Um Yeah, it's got a lot of Mormons. Uh, which is weird, actually, because I watched Book of Mormon last night. But you're not yeah. going to talk about that. You're going to talk about... I am going to talk about Halloween 4, The Return <laughs> of Michael Myers on Netflix. <laughs> Made and set in 1988. So there's a little gap here. Directed right. by Dwight H. Little and written by Mike, Alan B. McElroy. Who is, they are the team that would go on to make Tekken in 2010. That film has got um don't 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 speak for a second gary daniels as brian fury in it good that's the whole reason i watched it it's crap (laughs) (laughs) well brace yourself um (laughs) it's got a really good atmospheric credit sequence which is completely different to the rest of the film it's really it's really dark and moody uh the music this time is by alan howarth alone however the music this time it sounds like an episode of charmed or something it's all its synthy rawness is completely stripped away um so an ambulance arrives at a sanatorium to transport mikey myers to another facility now he finds out uh at some point in this journey that he has a niece that is laurie strode's daughter jamie and he escapes um heads on back to Haddonfield to find this young girl. Um, now, uh, Jamie, this this young girl, she's tormented by her own visions of Michael Myers, and she's also tormented by the bullies at the school. Um, now, Dr. Loomis, Donald Pleasance, he's back. He gets on the trail again, because um, of course Michael Myers is on the loose. He's delivering his usual portentous dialogue. He returns to Haddonfield <laughs> and he basically rustles up. A, it, it, the cops won't he's help him out. still explaining backstory. Yes. <laughs> he, he's, still, he's in it for another few films as well. Don't worry about that. He returns to Haddonfield. He, he basically, because the cops won't help him, he rustles up a lynch mob basically to get Michael Myers. Um, it's quite funny. So... Basically, a lot of the film is a bunch of guys stuck in this house trying to protect Michael Myers' niece um, while they're all being picked off by Michael Myers. Um, Inevitably, though, through murder and incompetence, it ends up with most of the dudes dying and the final girl, or could it be girls, uh, versus Michael Myers. Um, Obviously, Laurie Strode has long gone by now. uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is not in this series anymore. Um... Yeah, so the cinematography and the lighting, it looks nothing like John Carpenter anymore. It's much glossier, it's brighter, it's got a more it's got more TV cam uh, TV like camera setups and, and and TV like movements and zooms and stuff. It just looks cheap, sometimes in a good way, more often in a really trashy way. Uh the the girl who plays Jamie, the the kind of victim in this one, uh She's a good little actor. She was very intense. That's good. And the ending is 
pretty brutal, which I enjoyed. Um, but it's very predictable uh, in terms of who's going to die and in what order. Um, it's not terrible because at least they brought Michael Myers back, which is essential. And uh, but it's just a bit ordinary and predictable. Um, it's pretty much on par, I'd say, with the second film. And it's more watchable than the third, I'd say, but extremely undemanding. So not the best, but not the worst by any means. I thought when you said when you said uh, Jamie the girl, I thought I, I recognised. I, I had a flash of her face on on the, one of the, on the cover on the back, and it, she's played by Danielle Harris, who was in Marks for Death and The Last Boy Scout and Daylight. Right. So it's a hell of a yeah, a Heather and Urban Legend. So it's a hell of a. Uh, like a scream queen sort of thing going on there, which is yeah. quite cool. Um, yeah, she's really good. So she's this is um, she's quite pretty as well. I'm not gonna lie. With them um, now, not then. With them, um, I'll edit that out or clarify it. <laughs> um, the, the, so this you'd say is is a better film than the third one, even though the third one sits sort of outside of the canon of Halloween. This well, I, is, I, yeah, I think so. I I, I think. Halloween three sticks out in in a way it's it's like if it hadn't been a Halloween film, it hadn't been part of this franchise, I think I would have liked it more. Like the fact that it's shoehorned into this franchise bothers me. I think it's just a cheap trick. Um and it's not a terribly good film anyway, but but combined with the fact that it's like a a kind of surrogate Halloween film just bothers me too much I, I suppose it's better that it's shoehorned in after halloween too because if it was halloween which was so scene setting you know like you say so mm. genre setting and then they did halloween you know the third film and just shoehorned it in to be like hang on but after the third second one expectations were sort of sufficiently lowered yes. so it's like the third one they're like oh just check it out just call halloween three people are ready to be disappointed <laughs> it's fine yeah. exactly um uh, yeah I watched a film called The Guilty, um, 2021, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, oh, yeah. and this this is a remake of a, of a Danish film from 2018, which I of the same name, which I've I've seen, um, and I've got to say that I've I've never watched a remake of a film where it follows it so closely, literally, apart from effectively like the start and ending, <clears throat> the ending sequence especially is just slightly different. I've got a feeling that this was made and uh lockdown i think this was 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 made um when with social distancing because if the, the i suppose i better explain the before i go into the comparisons between them the, the plot is in both films um that there is a, a cop who is it's sort of a single camera thing where it's a cop who's on who's got something going on in his life or his career that we're unaware of as viewers and he has temporarily been demoted or reclassified to taking the incoming emergency calls in a sort of a course a small call center and the the main plot uh, kicks off with him taking a call from uh, a woman who's in a car or a van traveling on a highway and she's speaking to him in this sort of code saying that she's basically been kidnapped he contacts the home and finds that the mother has killed a young baby and oh sorry the father has killed the young baby and uh, has kidnapped the mother and the little girl rings him and gets through to him as well from the house phone asking for her, for her daddy a mummy and he's trying to 
sort of uh, calm calm the little girl down, get everyone on the case whilst dealing with his own personal demons, which come through on separate phone calls and his mobile. Um, so it's quite a it's 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 a very it's very much a film that comes from something like The Call with Halle Berry, which is also a good film, a good thriller. But this literally doesn't leave effectively Jake Gyllenhaal's face for like 90 minutes. Um, and the Danish film was the same thing, except at one point, I think he does go outside to smoke a fag. So it's they're very much film. I may as well just do them both together. They're films that completely and utterly rely on vocal performances and mm-hmm. the the main actor you're watching. And I, I have to say that I prefer the Danish film. And I think I, I really, really like Jake Gyllenhaal as an actor, and he's fantastic in this. But I think the reason I like the Danish film more is because it, there's that whole... Um, first start, I think, because the whole, the whole thing is so based on um, listening to voices. And, of course, the Danish language, especially the men, it's quite, it's quite low and almost um, guttural. It's a very low language and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, it's got this sort of air of threat around it. And w- when you when you're watching it and because you've got that sort of slight cultural shift as well and you you don't know who any of the actors are, it, it really adds to the tension and mystery. Right. And yeah. you're like really, really focused because you, you don't really have to watch the screen. You can really focus on the on the subtitles and get lost in the, in the tension of it and the claustrophobia of it, especially because in the Danish film, he's in it basically a shipping container with like two or three other people. And it's very claustrophobic. This is good. It's a really, really good remake. It's it's directed by Anton Fuqua. Um, so it, it, it's of a quality, but it's very much something they did, obviously, in lockdown. And you've got voices of Ethan Hawke in there and Paul Dano and Peter Sarsgaard, all good. But it's so close to the original and the original is so tight and taut and neat that it's almost like they said, oh, we can do this in lockdown. So, you know, let, let's do something. Mm. And they, they, they've knocked up in a, a really cool little thriller. And if you're not one for subtitles and you're a big fan of Jake Gyllenhaal, by all means, watch this and you'll think that, you know, I really enjoyed that. That was, that was a really nice film. Uh, sorry, a really nicely um, created film. But it, I would lean more towards the original Danish one, just for the reasons I've just said. There's a sort of an, a short epilogue to this that isn't in the original um, uh, involving the personal issues. Uh, and, and, it, and it's very much just focusing on Jake Gyllenhaal's character and that's a really nice ending sequence but it also takes away from the the, the pacey drive of the film right. um the, the sort of snappy stop start so it's good and it's it's on Netflix but I if you can watch the the Danish original from 2018 I'd, I'd chuck that on it's weird you mentioned that this is like the closest remake that you can think of in terms of like similarity between the two yeah the closest one i can think of is also a danish to english one which is night watch from the 90s directed by ollie bornadel and who is that made the one it, with ethan not ethan hawk um no, ewan, ewan mcgregor, McGregor. Yeah. yeah so he made McGregor's it in 94 which is a good little kind of taut horror film um about morgue necrophilia with nikolai costa waldau in it and um and then he remade it like three years later with Nick Nolte. Yeah. And it was like, um, and it was, it was like almost as good, but just not quite as good. It's like, yeah. And Ed, yeah, you McGregor, Nick Nolte, Josh Brolin as well, but almost 
yeah almost as good but um and it, but it was so similar it's practically shot for shot and i think in a way when it is so similar that almost highlights the, the differences and i suppose if you like the original so much then it's very difficult to get on board with something which is virtually identical you know yeah um right okay let's move on to halloween 5 the revenge of no have i done that <laughs> halloween 5 revenge of michael myers previous one no, was you, return yeah, yeah, this sorry. is revenge um this was made in 1989 it's churning them out aren't, aren't hot they? on the heels yeah yeah this continues directly from four. Uh, Michael Myers is assumed dead, but of course he survived. Um, he's brought back to health by this cave-dwelling hermit guy. Anyway, one year later, uh, Jamie, the, the young girl, she's now in a children's hospital, doubly traumatised now. She seems to be psychically connected with Michael Myers. Um, so oh, he, she knows that he's coming back for her. By the way, it's not really clear why by this point consider how many people have been murdered by this guy right That's countless murders why are the fbi not involved in this i mean they could you know in twin peaks it only takes one murder and the fbi are all over it but this guy just going around killing everyone and they could easily catch him anyway because he doesn't run anywhere and he's pretty incompetent and inefficient when it comes to his killing anyway donald pleasance is back as <laughs> dr loomis still sticking his oar in Still, in this one, he like he just really, really gets involved, and he'll like do things like um, he'll advise the doctors not to help Jamie, this girl, because she'll apparently stabilize on her own. That's his that's his uh, diagnosis. Um, I think a doctor would say, "Can you get out, Mister Pleasant? Yeah, can you go away, please? Um, <laughs> and and plus, you'd think that people would have less trust in. This Dr. Loomis anyway, because given that he's failed to stop Michael Myers for like three movies already. Um, anyway, so and he just comes across Loomis just comes across as really impatient and frustrated. And like, uh, Hang on. One. Didn't, I just realized that at the end of Halloween, too, doesn't doesn't Loomis shoot a gas canister or something that blows up in his face? Yes, he is with um, Michael Myers in a small room shoots a gas canister which supposedly kills michael myers but he's just got some like burns on his face that's it. that is that is bloody lucky that is yeah um yeah um this one has a pair of comedy cops in it and oh. when they're on screen the music turns into like actual clown music or like trumpet farts and penny whistles i'm not joking um that's crap rupert it's awful the script yeah. is unbelievably aimless it, it's at best a rehash and it, it at worst it's like inane and repetitive it vaguely picks up once you realize that jamie has this psychic limp link which is enabling the cops to know where michael is before he's able to kill again but the focus is really on the usual kind of slaying of the horny teens there isn't really any kind of a story being told it's it's simply once again, Michael Myers has returned and he's trying to get Jamie again. And then it's a series of set pieces of people being stalked and murdered or almost murdered. And that's all the franchise has ever been. But of course, now we've seen it all time and time again in the same locations with the same characters, with the same killings. So any mystery has been totally shorn away by this point. And yeah, and of course, when you've got Donald Pleasance still filling in backstory details, it's like, mystery is just completely vanished um add to that 
in this the killings are staged really poorly poorly they're really badly framed and edited there's a, a particularly lame car attack scene and finally there is a total cheat of an ending where michael myers escapes through inexplicable and physically impossible means it is <laughs> hot trash halloween 5 uh, and it's the lowest point of the series so far um and I just want to say at this point, because we are about to leave the 80s uh, with Halloween, I just want to say at this point, uh, there are decent 80s slashes, right? Um, that you probably, that most people probably haven't seen a million times. So if you want to try one of them, try out something like Edge of the Axe, which I've reviewed recently, Madman, The Burning, Sleepaway Camp, or Blood Rage. They're all better than this. So... You don't need to watch these Halloween sequels. There's plenty <laughs> more in the smaller board. Yeah, Blood Rage especially is an absolute keeper. Yeah. Mm. Um. So this is the the nadir of the series. This is Halloween Five so far. I mean, it could get worse as far as I know. Mm. No um. Yeah, and just as full disclosure, we we when we talk about films in between, when we, when we just say what we're going to be covering in these episodes. We don't really go into too much depth, so I do I do love hearing the good and the bad because especially when I think oh, I remember watching that thing it was okay not true not true um I watched I, I I'm have you covered this before I'm only going to do a two minute on it Jerry Maguire yeah uh, I don't know was it did we cover it on here I did watch it recently um yeah it was just um, I think actually we weirdly watched it at the same time because I sent yeah. you a picture because. I realized I was watching a film called Jerry Maguire, which stars Jerry O'Connell, and there's a cameo by Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains. And I thought, what? So many Jerry's. Um, and, and I was eating, what's that ice cream called? The joke would work better if I knew what it was called. Ben and Jerry's. Uh, that's right. I was eating that. It wasn't. Um, so, yeah, it, it just a two-minute thing, really, is we are big Tom Cruise fans on this podcast, right? We talk about Tom Cruise a lot, and we, we firmly believe he has probably been in, like, only one or two bad films. Um, yeah. And we also agree that the, the, he is at his best when he is someone who is really cocky, taken down and builds back up again. That is yes. the, the Tom Cruise arc. Um, and one of the best films of the last 10 years is uh, Live, I Repeat. So... Watching the uh, watching this film, where he plays a sports agent who has an a, an epiphany of conscience, and and is kicked out of his huge multi million dollar company, and then has to build himself back up, uh, whilst building a a, a personal and prof- uh, and a French personal friendship with a professional and personal friendship with Cuba Gooding Jr., who's always good value for money in these things. He he, he is I do like seeing Cuba Gooding Jr should on paper be good and it is fine <laughs> but there's something about the fact that it was written and directed by cameron crowe that this this some of the dialogue and the sentimentality and the yes. plot points that i just thought oh, this is starting to grate on me now and where there'll be these it, it's it's like it, it can't take itself to it can't have moments of true darkness and despair Everything's got to end in some sort of little little silly punchline or some quip. And it got to a point when I thought, oh, this has kind of lost me a bit now. And I, I've lost interest in what happens to these people because I'm aware of how long this film is. Uh, it's, it's an hour and 40. 
sorry, um, 140 minutes. And it was it was too winky for me, if that makes sense. I felt like um, the script thought it was too smart. Um, yeah. There was like Jay Moore is great in it. He's, he's such an easy character to hate, and there's some gorgeous scenes in it um, involving. I think it's one of the um, BT brothers actually. Right. So, um, there are some really nice moments in it, but I just wish it was directed by someone else. There's, I mean, I haven't watched too many Cameron Crowe films. But um, thinking about it now that I say it's directed by Cameron Crowe, it makes sense that Jerry Cantrell is in it. But um, yeah, I, this this isn't. I don't think I'll ever watch this again. I, I think I've only seen this once or twice in my teens, but it, it felt soft. And it is, well, it, it's Cameron Crowe's worldview is is saccharine, isn't it? Uh, and I think I possibly like this more than you, but not much more. I, I I think it's really well made and well acted. I think it's the the problem is probably with the script. I would think because some of the it's like all of the stuff, all of the cynical sports agent stuff is actually pretty funny and quite cutting. But all of the romance side of it is just so so saccharine, so maudlin. I I just can't. Yeah, it just breaks it for me. And, and like like you say, some of the lines that come out of their mouths, it's not just that, you know, they're sort of over the top and not the kind of things people would say in real life. The problem is they're just out of whack with the the kind of cynical sports agent side of things, you know, where it's quite acerbic. So it, it's a real weird one. Um, I'm not quite I, sure why it was such a massive success. Probably because of Tom Cruise, I guess. I mean, I think it's one of the first films of Rene Zellweger, and that's cool. But there's a the scene in it where I was thinking, didn't someone like flick through the script and say, "Oh, this this can be better." There's a scene where they separate, and, and to be honest, all of the all of the there's some sort of dynamic that I really dislike between um, um, Tom Cruise and Rene Zellweger where they, they're talking and, you know, they get together and they separate. Spoiler alert. But every time it's just them talking, it seems really staccato. And I just thought, surely this could have been because they're basically just saying things that to each other that I can imagine look good written down, but don't work in a, in a two-way conversation. Yeah. Um, where they would say things like, uh, you know, um, I thought I needed this, you know, and then she'd say, "You, I, I thought that I wanted you to need this, and say, <laughs> but maybe, maybe we need this now." Yeah. I wanted to need you, uh, and you're like, "Just cut. Can this be better? Can this just be better, please?" And they speak like human beings at some point. Yeah, I just, um, yeah, they lost me, um, and that's probably the point that it lost me at as well. So, um. I did love the. I'm not sure the 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 kid who seems to just be completely modelled on Kiefer Sutherland in Lost Boys. I found that kid really endearing. I've no, yes, I've noticed this since being a dad that I notice children in films a lot more, and he seems really infectious. And so uh, yeah, he was cool. But um, yeah, yeah I, and actually I, acts like a real kid. Yes, I, to the point you can almost see him bringing a smile to the the actors' faces if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So that that that's that's gorgeous. But yeah, as a film, it was too soft for me. Yeah. Especially okay. after watching something like Moneyball, it really stood yeah, out. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, where? Uh, what was that on? Is that on? Fine. 
Oh, it was on. Yeah, it's Prime Netflix or Disney Plus. You know how I roll, guys. <laughs> My notes. I watched Halloween Six: The Curse of Michael Myers <laughs> on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. It was made in 1995, directed by Joe Chappelle, who's mostly a TV director. This one introduces a certain Paul Stephen Rudd. Here he is, is my boy. Um, so Jamie, the niece, she gives still birth. Still played in, by Daniel Harris. I can't even remember. Um, she gives birth in a cave and some cultists. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some cultists take the child, apparently for a jolly good cursing. Uh, Jamie escapes with the child, but Michael Myers is after them. He's trying to get the baby, but she hides it. Kara Strode. Uh, I can't even work out what relationship she is. Anyway, she lives in the Myers house with her six-year-old son and a dysfunctional family. Um, And this creepy obsessive guy played by Paul Rudd lives across the street in a boarding house anyway he find he's the one who finds Jamie's baby who is hidden um now this is the one that also introduces someone called the thorn curse the idea is, yeah. is that the carrier of the curse must murder a next of kin on Halloween hence Michael Myers is hunting down the baby uh so yeah they're really just wallowing in new mythology new and unnecessary mythology um it's got really annoying crash cut editing this film and there's this it's, it's an excessive amount of strobe lighting um whether it's just lightning or randomly flashing strip lights but that so that's annoying but it does have some atmosphere it does have decent pacing does have a bit of personality of its own some vaguely interesting character dynamics and some unexpected incidents so it's already better than five um and it's got some quite arch humor thanks mostly to paul rudd who uh, who helps it means that the film doesn't slip into self-mockery or audience winking and i quite like that paul rudd's character is genuinely ambiguous um in terms of his motivations and that so which is something which is new for the series frankly um and the way they bring the strode dynasty back into the film is clever enough um i guess it's it's basically via this abusive patriarch who who ended up buying the myers property because he knew it couldn't be sold on the open market so he could get it as a cheap price um i also i i I, I like how Michael Myers. Can you imagine a scene where someone goes in and says, well, "This house is beautiful. It's got a, it's, it's so cheap for what it is." I mean, so who lived here before? And then the estate agent goes, "Oh, hang on, let me just um, uh, 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 <laughs> I don't think I've got that page of notes actually. Ah, I have to get back to you. <laughs> yeah, do you want to sign this first before I tell you? <laughs> um." I, I like how Michael Myers in this is outwitted rather than just defeated through blind luck. Um, and, because usually he's basically defeated either through blind luck and or his own self-imposed limitations, like walking everywhere, for example. But in this, is, he's actually outwitted. So that's cool. Um, and Donald Pleasance, his 
is toned down from the previous one when he was just a manic nut job. And he it's and what's nice is this was his final performance and he died before the film was released and oh, and it's okay. and it's quite a dignified final performance from him, so it's dedicated to him as well. Um so I would say yeah, Halloween six is is probably the best overall it's the best of the sequels up to this point. Not great, but above average. And Paul Rudd does elevate it. As the elevates everything. Um, uh, you sh- fans of Paul Rudd, such as myself, need to watch a series called Hot Ones on YouTube, where uh, it, the celebrities eat various wings covered in hot sauces as they get interviewed. And Paul, just I was watching Paul Rudd, and I thought, I'm, I'm actively falling in love with you watching this. I'm actively having changes in my body chemistry as I watch this, with how how you are as a person. I want to be one of your children so i can just spend time looking at you and with like with my eyes vibrating with emotion but it turns out it was just a 20 minute interview and it finished so that didn't happen um so this is this is good this seems like a a leap of quality uh since the last one then i would say it's an evolution of quality (laughs) um you didn't mention that mitch ryan was in this what character does he play i have no idea <laughs> well, thanks for clarifying. That. <laughs> and you look through your notes, you little pussy. Um, no, that's no, just Mitch Ryan. Obviously, was in Red uh, Raw Deal, so I just assumed <laughs> that. Sorry, yeah. oh, no, and he was in Lethal Weapon as well. So I, yeah, I just assumed that um, he would stand out in this. But he's just you don't you didn't notice him. If he's not Gary Boosie, then I'm not really going to mention him, am I? Yeah, you say that about every film we review, Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> Does this start Gary Boosie? I'm not listening. Then. Either way, uh, we're, we're talking about Gary Busey. Uh, I obviously love that man, and everyone should watch Bulletproof, which is a film we should cover in this oh podcast. But I didn't see Point Break till I was in my 30s, and I was sitting there watching the film, and um, I was watching it, and I sat down, with a, to get, I went in the kitchen to get a drink, watching it totally alone in the mid-afternoon, sat down, poured myself a drink, and when he got shot outside that airport with a shotgun shot in the chest totally dead like huge death scene i actually stood up and shouted no and spilt my drink because i was so i was so happy that i it was a gary Boosie film i hadn't seen no stood up spilt my drink everywhere he's so brilliant. good in it as well he's brilliant he's so good at that like hawaiian like zany hawaiian shit sporting madman he should just play it in every film really like he does um, in the, I can't remember though. Is it in Point Break, Rupert, or is it in Bulletproof, where he escapes from being tied to a giant wooden wheel by dropping a grenade at his own feet and looking away and shutting his eyes? Yes, that is Bulletproof, <laughs> which man. is also the film where at the start he's like he's trying to he's creeping up on like a what's a drugs deal or something in a like a in like a warehouse. And he creeps through like an upper window and he's on the rafters sort of thing. So he's got the drop on them. He, he's he got the jump on these guys. Uh, he's got the perfect position. Uh, and then he just uses to shout at them um, and just alert them to his position. They all start shooting at him and he, he jumps down really awkwardly. And he gets shot in the chest, I believe yeah. as well, Rupert. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's also the film where halfway through they say, we're going to have to drop you in the middle of a desert to find a compound and rescue some prisoners and he says well give me a couple of hours to get ready so you think he's going to get like some supplies and like a sniper rifle and whatever and nope he just puts on a leather jacket and has an uzi 
a traditionally short-range weapon, gets dropped off in the desert, instantly gets lost, and stumbles upon and almost gets shot by the man there to meet him. <laughs> it's also Fantastic. the film where he... I think he plays trumpet on his own. Or is it saxophone? I can't remember. Saxophone yeah, he, he's reminiscing about his own past sexual conquests. Uh, uh, it, so it cuts to him remembering having sex with a woman on a beach as uh, a sort of blue image of him playing saxophone is like a sort of superposed above them in the sky. <laughs> and, and that is the film Bulletproof where he has a jar where he keeps all of the bullets that he's been shot with. It's not so much bulletproof as like, because clearly that is evidence that he's not bulletproof. In fact, that he's been shot many, many times. And he's like, remove them from his flesh. Oh, anyway, we need better to crack that. on. It, yeah, okay, okay. Films to okay, yeah, okay. So I'll tell you what, I've only got two more. I'm going to, oh, okay. I've got, I'm going to pound through these and then give you 20 minutes to go through the rest. Okay. Okay. So um, the the last full film I watched is called No One Gets Out Alive, which is a film um, in which a, a young uh, a girl from Mexico comes up with like no money illegally to move into this sort of halfway boarding house. And she's trying to get a foothold, trying to get a job and get her fake papers in America so she can then sort of start a life there. And she's working this like bloody awful sewing machine factory with some people who say with a woman who says oh you know i can if you give me x amount of money like two thousand dollars i can get you papers and you can you can start your new life Mm -hmm. she's constantly um plagued by flashbacks of her mother that she she had to miss out college on because she had to stay by her side as she died of a tedious illness in bed terrible tedious illness in bed and she moves to this halfway house and of course it's haunted to shit and back um she gets ripped off by the woman who says she can get her papers and she literally has nothing. And then the landlord turns out to be extremely dicky. This is a film that's tough. to It's tough to talk about what I liked without spoiling it, which is why it's just a two minute. But I will say that it, it does get that sense of like absolute poverty and hopelessness pretty well. And it's almost that, that, the situation she's in is almost held back by the fact that this is a horror film, by the fact that they have to have all the spooky goings on and stuff, because the the, the main um, actress who is uh, Christina Rodeo is, is, is she is destitute and just there's, there's, there's seemingly no way out of the situation she's in and everything's closing in around her. Um, so I'll try and do this without spoiling, but basically there's, She's in this house. She's in this halfway house with a few girls that keep disappearing. The landlord seems to be pretty benevolent, but it turns out he's a bit of a tinker. And the last, I'd say, 40 minutes of the film introduce a monster. And this monster was, I thought it was amazing. I thought, yes, this is fine. It's creepy as shit. And it, it looks fantastic. And it just, it's so horrible to behold. And and the way the way it enters the scene and exits the scene is is perfect, and I and I thought it's almost worth watching the film just for that. I thought the ending the ending was quite nice, and the film is only eighty five minutes long, so it's, you're looking at like seventy five eighty including credits and stuff. This is on Netflix. Uh, no one gets out alive, and if you like if you like monsters as much as I do, it's worth watching just just to see it and how how it how it appears. So, but beyond that, it you do think 
Oh, this feels more of a drama than a horror. It's like a light horror, if you know what I mean. Okay. So, yeah. Still counts. Still counts. Still worth it. Yeah, it's, it's worth 80 minutes of time easily. <clears throat> I'm only going to talk about this briefly because I I paid for this. I paid cash money for this. Uh, £1.99 on Amazon Prime to watch Spiral from the Book of Saw. And I watched about 50 minutes of it. And because I'm perennially tired because I have a seven month old son, I turned it off and I thought, oh, I'll finish watching this tomorrow. And the next day I was washing the dishes and thought, oh, I've got the rest of that film to watch. But I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, um, and this film. <clears throat> when this was. Brought to the public consciousness like two years ago, whatever. And they said, Chris Rock is going to get involved he's going to start in a new saw film and he's gonna i don't know if he's involved in producing it or who is involved in the writing he said that he loved the saw films and he, he had something he wanted to bring to the franchise and i was excited because i think that genuinely believe the last time i saw chris rock in anything because i don't watch the savalis was lethal weapon 4 and i thought you know he's quite funny in that he did just come on screen and do basically skits from his comedy act but that's fine and i thought this could be really good like a reinvention of chris rock where he would take take it to a more i don't know like a darker place or reinvent how how the audience views chris rock as as a character and i was really looking forward to this and when i saw it for like two quid nams and i thought oh my god i forgot about this and i'm excited to rediscover it that enthusiasm was short-lived as i realized that what chris rock does in this film is just come on screen do a bit of a comedy skit and then look at something buzzing and that is it's really disappointing um he plays a cop who is um getting involved in these effectively just more saw killings and he um is reviled by his department because he turned in a crooked cop a few years before and it's just the whole situation samuel jackson plays his dad as well so it's just it's constant comedic banter punctuated by the usual really visceral horror and if you're like me where really visceral horror is is all well and good but not really what i'm here for and then it's totally uneven with a load of really jokey banter which is quite often just like really sexist and misogynistic anyway so it's not even clever and you think come on now chris you're like you're 50 and you're still you're still just coming on and just talking about shit like why women take so long in the bathroom and stuff like that it's like it's not just because this is married to a horror film doesn't it doesn't make it acceptable. It just seems flat and you've wasted possibly the best opportunity you will ever have to reinvent yourself. Mm. And it was, it was, I was just bored. I was, no, bored. that's what I was expecting was a kind of reinvention, completely different side to Chris Rock because often yeah. comic actors go into drama and they, they surprisingly adept at it. Uh, but yeah, that's really disappointing to hear that it's he is just doing Chris Rock there. That's a pity. Yeah. Not that I have any particularly strong feelings about the Saw franchise, although let's face it, in a future episode it will be one of the franchises <laughs> that I watch from beginning to end, no doubt. You'll have to, you'll have to tell me how it finishes. Uh, um, okay, I probably so, well so maybe, that, I'll, that, wait, maybe I'll wait maybe for that. I'll wait for the uh, for the time when I go through the entire franchise. Bro, what's that? Um, I'm I'm done. Um, you can power through the next six films. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, um, I, a couple of them are probably gonna 
breeze past pretty quickly. Um, but the next one is uh, from 1998. This was Halloween H2O, uh, 20 years later. That's the, it's literally part of the title. Um, now I paid for this on Prime. Uh, it doesn't seem to be available for free anywhere. It was made in 1998, as I said, by Steve Miner. He did a couple of the Friday 13th sequence plus he did, of course, House in the mid 80s with William Cat. Good. And unfortunately, Lake Placid as well. It's um, so Halloween H2O is it's it's pretty flashy and slick. It's a far cry from the kind of eerie, raw simplicity of the original. It's got fully orchestrated music. Um, it's post scream. So there's a sense of fun. It's, it's a big roller coaster type of horror. Um, and for the first time, I suppose you could say that that Halloween film is fun, which is not something you usually associate with it as such, um, as in as a slightly more of a lightness of tone. Um, so Laurie Strode now has a 17 year old son, Laurie Strode, who is played, yes, by Jamie Lee Curtis again. Um, she has a 70 year old son, Sean, played by Josh Hartnett. Sean, uh, Josh Hartnett's here. Is it like, is it um, just sort of slick back or is it side parting? Or t- tell Ew. us more. It is, it is brushed forward uh, right, and then right. like, <laughs> and then like messed up uh, around the crown. I don't know if that's something you've seen before, Jim. Yeah, yeah, carry on. <laughs> Uh, so basically, she is, uh, Laurie is, I don't know if she's a head teacher, but she's a principal at this school um, where her son is as well. And basically, there's this big camping trip um, that's, that's going on. It's really just an excuse to clear out the school, essentially. Um, basically, Josh Hartnett is kind of like, he's not he's going to skive off this trip uh, so he can hang out with michelle williams and get jiggy um and a couple of his other mates um now laurie strode herself she's too kind of like uh uptight to go on a trip like that she just wants to stay at, stay at home so there's a small cast of characters in this school um now laurie strode she's still haunted by visions of michael myers and she's She's taken on an assumed name, so she's not called Laurie in this. And yeah, she's at this boarding school. And and really, I mean, most of the film actually is quite a lot of build up, really. It's really building up characters and that to build up to this final sequence of stalking and slashing in the school. And and I think what's quite crucial about all this build up is that the writers do justice to Laurie Strode and her trauma uh, she's a secret drinker and she's she's actually uh, her boyfriend is this grief counsellor and their relationship is actually quite believably grown up. It's quite deftly written, I'd say. I, I like the scene where Laurie Strode is teaching Frankenstein to a class and a Michelle Williams character talks about confronting the monster and stuff like that. So it's quite a nice little touch there and and a bit of foreshadowing, of course. Um, and it doesn't have that directionless writing that a lot of the sequels had. It's actually building to something. There's a nice cameo from Janet Lee, the original screen queen from Psycho. And it even that scene even has a little musical reference to Psycho. So that's quite nice. It does go quite generic towards the end. And Michael is again 
he's distinguished by his sloppiness as much as anything. Um, but at least the film has provided by then enough context and characters for us to care who lives and dies. So that's important. And the actual ending itself seems like, well, it's not the best, but it's probably the best of a bad bunch of possible endings. And I would say that this is uh, this is definitely a step up in quality. And I think you could what you could safely say is that you could watch the original and then jump straight to this one, to be honest, quite happily. And you wouldn't have to go without Jamie Lee Curtis for all that time. So that's good. But you would um, miss Paul Rudd. I, I, I turned on my phone just then to see what the time was, and it, I'm on Halloween 5 on my phone. And I just glanced, and I just laughed at the at this, this sort of sentence where it says, it follows serial killer Michael Myers, who again returns to the town of Haddonfield to murder his niece. And I thought, I just had this vision of like him like fully masked up, sitting in like a camper van somewhere, just like flicking through a magazine, and looking at him and going, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to murder my niece, wasn't I? Yeah. Oh, maybe. and then uh, I better pop it's my something boots to do. on. Yeah, there's something in the back of my mind. Um, yeah. Halloween Resurrection also paid for this, amazingly. This was made in 2002. It was directed by Rick Rosenthal. Remember him? Who oh, made yeah. Halloween 2, exactly. Is this the one with Buster Rhymes, Rupert? Mm, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, and this opens with the most preposterous piece of uh, retconning it, it puts the con in retcon it's so bad it's basically what it what it posits is that at the end of h2o uh previous film uh laurie strode killed the wrong guy um it was actually someone else she killed it wasn't michael myers at all but this of course completely contradicts what we saw at the end of that film but anyway whatever um was it? Did she? Did she kill Tom Adkins because he looked at her and said, "I've just met a woman who's actually twenty-five years younger." Than me. <laughs> and she got insanely jealous. Um, <laughs> anyway, she's in the film for like five minutes. Um, so yes, the real Michael Myers is out there again. So there's this high school, right? It's just introduces a bunch of new characters. In this high school, some teens are preparing an internet. This is two thousand and two, right? They're preparing an internet show <laughs> about the legend of Michael Myers. And they're using mm. these mini cameras. So there's a big fan footage element here. Uses mini cameras to explore the Michael Myers, the Myers residence at night so people can watch online. Uh, so it turns out, actually, the kind of little twist early on is you, you find out that the organisers of this are actually having everyone on. And they've like got people to dress up like Michael Myers to freak them out. But of course, the real Michael Myers is actually there as well. Oh, the sausage. It's it's zany. Um, So, but this whole thing, this whole setup means you have this double tedium, right, of annoying teens in the house. And on top of that, annoying teens watching them. And of course, (laughs) they obviously find it really funny because they think it's all fake. Uh, and Double tedium was such a missed opportunity (laughs) for Double Team with Jean-Claude Van Damme as a sequel, wasn't it? Um, but the whole that whole setup as well completely negates the like intensity of the action in the house because it keeps cutting away for reaction shots like people get attacked it'll cut away to the people watching online and they're going ooh or like ah like it's awful so this is very very light satire on like the veracity of reality TV but of course no one really cares about that stuff anymore so it's it's actually even more dated than 
the previous films. Anyway, um, the script is just staggeringly bad. It like it's got that, you know, when we've talked about this before, really unconvincing young people dialogue. Um, oh yeah. When it's clearly screenwriters, you can't write for teens. So they just because they're writing teen dialogue they just default to constant sexual innuendo in lieu of understanding of how young people actually speak also characters constantly talking to themselves as if as if they're performing for a camera but but they're not always performing for a camera so i mean it's there are no i can't believe you were the marketing director for this film There are no characters in this film. They're just traits and tropes. They're just these really over-sexualized entities walking around saying stupid things, waiting for loud, obnoxious noises to jump out of closets. Um, now, Katie Sackhoff is in this film. She would go on to be a legendary feminist icon in Battlestar Galactica only two years yet later. So it's really oh. weird to see her, who went on to be this, like, strong soldier to see her in this is this giggling blonde bimbo it's really off-putting um there are loads of scenes of people basically trying it on with michael like fighting him and actually doing okay uh, which further reduces his indomitable power buster rhymes is one of them and he actually does kung fu on him whilst making like racist sounds um (laughs) This is a this is a would you say this is the worst film yet? Yes. I I would say that. Uh it's yeah, there's no uh, forget about the old school widescreen photography, none of that. It's got a really, really horrible dark filter. Uh like uh it's it's, there's zero like Halloween-y or autumnal atmosphere. There's none of that because it all looks like it was filmed on like a crappy set. The kills are boring and repetitive. It's 80 minutes long and it feels like forever. And and there's just no tension building whatsoever. Um, this is the just the worst kind of early 2000s horror where it treats was... <laughs> it treats its audience like ADHD idiots basically. And it's it's the worst Halloween movie so far. And a, yeah, and a, an amazing collapse after. Like how surprisingly good H2O was. You're absolutely right. And I know we're pushed for time here, but absolutely right in that this is early 2000s, which is some of the worst horror that's come around. And also just assuming its audience are a bunch of like Dorito and Red Bull guzzling twats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's awful. That's what kids want, supposedly. Right. Let's quickly run through Halloween and Halloween 2. You may think, well, hang about, haven't we gone through them? No, because these are the Rob Zombie remakes um, from 2007 and 2009. Um, Now, the Halloween remake of 2007 by Rob Zombie, this is really quite a strange one because it's very much a remake, but it it spends its first 50 minutes, right, um, basically just showing us uh, the backstory of Michael Myers. Um, like, it's a really chaotic household. He's got a stripper mother. He's got an abusive stepfather. He's bullied at school. He's got these signs of disturbance, like he'll kill animals and stuff. Um, Dr. Loomis, played in this by Malcolm McDowell, which is quite a good piece of casting, to be honest, um, is starting to take an interest in this kid. 
who's started acting violently towards people. Now, it's quite well done, all this early stuff of him, you know, building up this character of Michael Myers. But it's interesting, John Carpenter didn't like the idea of giving Michael Myers a backstory. He felt that it took away from the mystique. It took away from the elemental aspect. Um, Had he seen the other films? Had he seen the other films <laughs> leading up to this? Because yeah. when they're bringing he, in he like cults some of the other and... films, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I, I can understand why. And I, like I said, I mean, the backstory stuff is quite well made, but and it does distinguish it from other films in the series. But ultimately, it's pretty pointless once the mayhem starts, anyway, because the reasons for Michael Myers' psychopathology are pretty irrelevant in the heat of the moment, and. And this film also retains the whole dumb idea of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode being siblings. So that was a wasted opportunity to get rid of that nonsense. It's actually about 50 minutes before we even get to Haddonfield and meet Laurie Strode. Um, uh, and she's played by Scout Taylor Compton, who's fine. Uh, her mother is played by Dee Wallace. So that was nice. Of the Howling and Cujo fame. Um, so, yeah, it... <sighs> The only time it really deviates again from the original is this really unnecessary twist where Laurie ends up getting abducted and the whole twist doesn't really make sense. Um, And the the effect, the net effect of Rob Zombie's deviations is an almost two hour running time. So it is a bit laborious. And frankly, I I think that his, his additions are unnecessary but at the same time if he just remade it without them it really wouldn't have anything to distinguish itself um so yeah i i liked some of the there's some old school hard rock on the soundtrack it was quite nice to hear um tom sawyer by rush coming on the stereo that was good um but yeah the other thing about rob zombie as we know from stuff like house of a thousand corpses is that he absolutely delights in gore. Uh, he lingers lovingly on just real suffering and protracted pain, um, which will become more of an issue in the next one, in the next film. Um, but I found, yes, uh, this remake pretty average overall. It's too long. It is its own thing, which is fair enough, but it the additions seem just a bit unnecessary. Is it uh, gory? I don't remember this being gory for some reason. It's fairly gory, but nowhere near as gory as a 2009 sequel, which I'll mention now, because okay. this one is... It, it starts off with... Oh, by the um, way, that, that Halloween 2007 only cost $15 million to make, which seems a lot for horror, but, yeah, it's... Yeah. It's not, it's not a stupid amount of money. No, not stupid. I mean, compared... Mind you, like... Bloomhouse is making better films for five million these days, but you know, um, yeah. So, but Halloween two, which starts off, by the way, with one of the longest dream sequences I've ever seen. It must be literally about fifteen minutes of screen time. One of us hasn't played Far Cry five, have they? (laughs) But literally, fifteen minutes is just wiped out when uh, a character just wakes up and it's like, ah, right, okay, that was a long time to be watching something which didn't happen so uh it's set a year on and laurie strode 
uh, is now living with uh, the sheriff, played by Brad Dourif. Good. Um, and this one is just, I'm not even going to bother going into the plot of this because I want to talk about the 2018 film next. I'll, what I will just say is that it's it, it, a lot of this film looks like a bad Christian rock video. There's all these weird dream sequences with Michael Myers envisaging his mother and a uh, like a, a white, a pure white horse and stuff. My my brother recently watched this and and that is what broke him as well. That's was, the thing. Yeah, it's bad. It's way more violent than the first one. It's it's more like torture porn, really, or, or more accurate, I'd say, torment porn. Because if it's not just grotesquely violent, it's it will be Laurie Strode just screaming endlessly in terror or being triggered in therapy. Um, and it's not just Laurie. I mean, there's a scene. There's a scene where like Michael Myers attacks a strip club, and of course. You can't get let this naked stripper get away without a scene of her having her face smashed repeat into, repeatedly into a mirror. I mean, uh, Rob Zombie just he just cannot help himself. He the it's like watching the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but for a, like an hour and a half, really. It's yeah, and the sheer body count it. It negates a lot of the impact of the individual kills themselves. You see what I mean? Because, and this is something I, a concern I have with the upcoming sequels. Actually, is that there's a lot of bang for buck here. It's like it's less about sustained tension and more about the brutal release part. So, and all that Rob Zombie cares about is this the brutality. Um, and then there's this awful scene towards the end where he dares to pause for a moment so that we can supposedly mourn one of the victims. And this really sentimental, ethereal music just fills your ears. And it's like we just spent 90 minutes reveling in this violence and showing us every disgusting detail without developing any of the characters of your victims. And now you're asking us to feel sentimental. It's like it's cheap. So, um in the end, uh, like the character of Laurie Strode has drifted so far from the sensible, resourceful, everyman character that yeah. she was originally, that it's just impossible to relate to her. And it's terrible. Halloween 2 is, is just terrible. Like, I can see why they wanted to reboot it again, which they did in 2018, uh, which is a direct sequel to the 1978 film directed by David Gordon Green. Um, who is somewhat unfairly associated with comedy, solely with comedy. He has done comedies, but they just happen to be his biggest hits. So in this one, Laurie Strode, again, Jamie Lee Curtis is back. Good. She's now a hermit who's built this fortress to protect herself from Michael Myers' inevitable return. Her granddaughter is kind of sympathetic towards her, but her daughter's sort of ashamed, really. Now, Laurie Strode, is, she's basically become Sarah Connor in this. She's preparing for the apocalypse. And... <laughs> when Michael Myers escapes a transfer to a new facility uh, her daughter and granddaughter are going to need Laurie Strode to survive um, now the the whole thing about um, Michael Myers and Laurie Strode being siblings is amusingly dismissed in this film 
and there's one point where Laurie's daughter just explains that it, it says to a character, oh, that was just something people made up to make themselves feel better. I was like, it's quite a nice way of just getting rid of that. Um, and there's a twist in this film which really works because because of what we know about Dr. Loomis from the previous films and and it's uh, it's just a really cool twist because of our expectations of certain characters. So that really works. I I like how the daughter of Laurie is smart and resourceful, but not in a. In fact, all the women really they're smart and resourceful, but not in an overpowered, like unrealistic neo-feminist way. There's there's no ridiculous feat of strength which we've seen often in these sorts of uh, empowering films. Um, because the women, they know they're up against a physically superior enemy, but they, they, they seek to defeat him through like planning, preparation, and courage. So that's cool. And, and I also like in this how the killings themselves all push the story along, rather than being just an excuse to up the death count. I'm looking at you, Rob Zombie. They tell part of the story each time. So each killing will effectively lead to. A killing will lead another character to a realization which will then kick off the next phase of action so it's quite a clever script and it's yeah so overall i'd say if you're gonna be <laughs> coming into halloween for the first time watch the first one watch the 28th 2018 film and then maybe go back to h2o because that's pretty good too and six if you like paul rudd what yes. um uh, you, you uh, uh, when I watch the I've seen the original uh, the sorry the 2018 film a few times now because I do really like it and I liked it for all the reasons you've just mentioned but I'm just thinking about um this obviously it's now part of a trilogy and mm-hmm. I was I could understand if it was a duology but I'm just thinking. The, the 2018 film had such an impact and you know the, the characters are in such states at the end of it michael Myers especially that you think i can imagine one more but is this second film just gonna drag it out for the inevitable ending that's already pre-scripted that's my yeah. concern i don't know it, what is it gonna have middle part syndrome yeah 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 mm-hmm. i really feel like that i know i know we've talked uh, uh, before in a, uh, about a few films that have had sequels trilogies with a sequel that just sort of just meanders a little bit and you think actually that could have just been cut out and summed up in a flashback in the third one um yeah i i know so little about uh they're called halloween kills and then halloween ends aren't they i know so little about because i haven't seen any trailers or anything and um but i one thing i did read was that there is quite uh quite a divisive narrative moment in the second film uh so that so it sounds like it could be bold it could mm. be interesting but, but as i said my real concern is that do they resist the temptation to just go more and bigger if you sort of mean where it's just becomes it's just upping the death count like because like it's never the best Halloween films have never been about the number of deaths. They've always been about like well-crafted tension, really. Uh, and then sometimes the manner of death as well, but mostly about the tension, about the, the inevitability of this shape 
coming into their lives and being relentless. So, yeah, that's my only concern. But I'll be watching them with my eyes, mostly for Jennifer oh. Curtis, because she's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, when, apparently when she got the call to be in the uh, this Halloween remake, she was playing golf with her husband, like pretty much retired, good. Um, okay, I, I understand we're running over, so I'll wrap this up as quickly as I can. Um, so your film of the week? <laughs> um, I'll say, well, in terms of how surprisingly good it was, Halloween H2O, 20 years later, uh, in terms of the best Halloween film, 2018. Halloween. Okay. I think for me it's going to be um my my film of the week. As much as I love watching Broken Arrow again and again, The Guilty. I think people should watch whichever version of that they they fancy, whichever one appeals to them. Yeah. And I'm just gonna before we shoot off say the next Arkansas. You have to get from Samantha Mathis to Stephen Dorff. So it's three two. This could be a chance for the the audience to equalise. Okay. Okay. That should be is doable. <laughs> so it's late, and I will say, remain beautiful, and I'll speak to you soon, babe. All my love to you and the family.